Cameron Bartotovich is a self-identified product of good fortune. Being the gay kid of a Marine and a member of Zhen Zi, he gleaned from an early life of cross-country living, both urban and rural, that the supportive infrastructure for LGBTQ youth is rapidly deteriorating. Not one to rest on their laurels, Cameron saw an opportunity to see to it that LGBTQ youth like himself have positive and reliable resources to call on in times of crisis at school. Turns out he was right. After Cameron founded the Youth Pride Association, the data shows that all it takes is a peer, a friend, a phone call to literally talk someone who is suffering off the ledge. The plights of the older LGBTQ generations are not over, and this young college student is heeding the call. Don't miss the next episode of Bourbon with Beagle. I'll be drinking Burnside Bourbon, a Portland distilled bourbon. How about you? Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining our podcast. Today, we have as our guest Cameron Bursadish. And did I say that right? Uh, Bursadish. It's pretty close. Yes. Okay, good. Good. Because being from Texas, sometimes I tend to not have the great accent of doing that. So I try to, to really uh, make sure that I do. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. The good thing is that we're going to talk a little bit and I always about some of your achievements, but also your organization. And we'll get into that a little later. But I asked the same guests a couple of questions. One is, what generation are you in? Uh, I think I'm considered Generation Z. Good. That's great. Well, I'm a few generations above you, so um, we'll be able to discuss things and hopefully you'll you'll help me understand a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and specifically about through nonprofits. So, and do you even have a philosophy of aging? So, yeah, I saw that question and uh, I, I had never really considered me and myself to have a philosophy. Uh, I'm a biochemist by education. So I guess my philosophy is more so kind of geared towards the biology of, you know, aging, the shortening of telomeres. I don't know, for me, it feels like a, the more you age, the more rigid you are and, uh, and kind of your viewpoints and philosophies. Mm-hmm. So I guess that kind of helps guide conversations with individuals who might be a bit older. Personally, I don't think I've been alive long enough to have a philosophy on aging. <laughs> I'm sure you don't um, to do that one. And, and it, it's really kind of brought home because Queen Elizabeth passed away yesterday at 96. And so that aging process, her aging process has pretty, been pretty covered widely by the media and that sort of thing. So uh, it's good to have a younger generation that doesn't fall into the same aging that the boomers do, such as myself. How has your personal journey evolved uh, to where you're at at this point in your life? That's also a great question. So my personal journey has kind of been a very interesting one. Uh, I've been very fortunate in a lot of things. uh, And I'm only here today because of that good fortune. I didn't want to go into this work necessarily, uh, especially when I was younger. I kind of just wanted to be myself and not have to, you know, advocate for my peers. But I I came to a crossroads my freshman year of college when I was approached with uh, the issues LGBTQ students faced. And they kind of, uh, a lot of them aligned with the issues I had faced in high school. And presented with that information, I, I kind of, you know, again, was at that crossroads. Like, do I do something about it or do I just look at that information and kind of, you know, put in the back of my brain 
and I realize that I, I should do everything I can to kind of make it better for the people who precede me. Mm -hmm. uh, because the people who came before me had made my life so much easier than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. And at that, you know, we kind of came up with the idea, uh, my team and I, of the Acceptance Week program, which is I'll talk about later. And then from that, kind of the nonprofit came from that. And I, I've been very fortunate in a, in a lot of different ways to kind of be able to, I feel like, have a, a position to make a very tangible change. Well, I think the thing that is kind of interesting is that you have had pioneers before you that have made maybe hopefully our lives as GLBTQ plus individuals a little easier for your generation. My generation didn't have that. We had mm -hmm. some, but not a lot. But it kind of seems like now we're reversing back to some of the what I had thought to be uh, fights that had been won. So how do you view that, especially with some of the recent uh, court rulings on, on insurance, uh, Roe versus Wade, all of that? So how is, what's your sense of that type of stepping back? Uh, it's something I've anticipated for a while. The writing's kind of been on the wall uh, mm -hmm. since I've started my work. I've kind of been trying to sound the alarm bells that this was a approaching. But to be honest, I, I'm very disappointed that it's happening, but I'm not necessarily surprised. Okay. I feel like my generation kind of has been a bit complacent mm -hmm. when it comes to advocacy work, you know, thinking that the work has been done since we've gotten marriage equality. The reality is, you know, progress is something that we always have to fight for. And our rights right. are something that we're always going to have to fight for. And it's, it's kind of a sad reality, but, you know, <laughs> it keeps me in work. But it, it, it's, it's honestly kind of tragic because it's not just like, you know, people on paper, like these are people's entire livelihoods, um, transgender individuals in a lot of states are facing some pretty heinous conditions. And while like this is all in the legislative, you know, there have been a lot of, I guess, re reversals in terms of, you know, social progress. I've been talking with students from uh, across the country from many schools, and they have the consensus of that their condition is worse than before the pandemic. They're facing a lot more bullying. Uh, they're facing uh, suicidal thoughts a lot more. They're facing a lot more harassment and like physical assaults on campuses, which is honestly just shocking to me because we were we were on a, a downward trend when it came to that. It was still pretty bad, but you know, we were starting to approach a more equitable school climate, but definitely feels like things have, have definitely fallen back. But honestly, that kind of invigorates me a bit more too, because that means, I, you know, I, I have some use here and I, I feel like I yeah. can at least make some small tangible impact on, on these students might not be able to stop this legislation from coming through, but I'll definitely try. But um, yeah. through a lot of our support programs, we've been able to provide uh, these students at least an hour of relief every other week. Great. Well, I think I was taken by surprise uh, mm -hmm. a little bit on the reversal of this. I thought the law had been discussed, done, uh, and there would be no re, uh, reversal of any of this. And so it was kind of a, a surprise and a shock for me. And I think what it has done, hopefully for my generation, is that we'll get the advocacy that we had back in the seven, late 70s, early 80s, especially with the AIDS crisis and HIV crisis. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll do that. And I just, I've made the comment several times that I'm surprised the boomers that are older than I am, who actually was out there protesting against the Vietnam War and those type of things aren't doing the activism that they did. So hopefully this will change a little bit. 
The question, I hope so too. Um, So when you talk about reversals of laws and that sort of thing, how does that impact the overall mission or work that you do with your organization? To be honest, it kind of makes things a lot more difficult, especially with the don't say gay law uh, mm-hmm. or bill. And uh, in Florida, we've had to mm-hmm. cease all of our planned operations there. So we okay. had about three or four acceptance weeks planned to host in those high schools. And we've had to cancel all of them simply because uh, the school districts don't want the liability, even though right. likely our programs would be within the scope of the very barbaric law. Mm-hmm. And we're slowly, I think, starting to get pushed out of more and more states. Georgia proposed their own version of the same law that's even more barbaric. And if as long as, as, long as those laws aren't challenged, they're going to, I think, spread into the areas that this program is needed the most. Um, but then in the same capacity, we've been very fortunate that our operations in certain programs have been allowed to, to continue. So our virtual support group programs have been permitted to continue in those states simply because you know, they, they can't stop us. Um, uh, and a lot of students have found support where it has since been like removed from their school. So yeah. we've seen a lot of upticks in the states, unfortunately, but uh, I'm glad that we can provide the support that they need at that time. I just wish we weren't necessary. You know? Right. So what do you think, is there a catalyst that charged us moving our catalyst that, that, came about to move us backwards instead of forwards? Uh, yeah, there, there definitely was um, elections. There always is a hot button issue for each election. And starting 2020, it became trans rights. And uh, I feel like as a community, we kind of permitted it to happen because it wasn't affecting us directly. So the trans sports bills bans that were banning quite literally like four athletes out of a whole state. And the fact that we allowed those to go through unchallenged for the most part, um, I think kind of was a silent acknowledgement, more so like a bystander effect of permitting more and more to be taken. And uh, we have midterms coming up. So that's also another catalyst for the, this uh, recent go about. It's unfortunately for one side, a, a political issue, which I don't think human rights should ever be, but reality is it is. What a great insight uh, to that. It certainly enlightened me, which doesn't take much these days, but it, it does do that. So what would you say contributed to, to, to you the most that brought yourself to today and in, in your work? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, there, there's been a lot that's gotten me here. Uh, I kind of touched on it a bit. Uh, I've definitely been very lucky and very fortunate to be where I am today. It's been a lot of very random events that have provided me a lot of opportunities to expand our services, to be able to even set up the nonprofit. Uh, and I think my, my experiences in high school were not the best. And while at the time that was a very negative thing, uh, they've definitely given me a lot of drive and motivation to make sure. that change, which has inadvertently become a, a positive thing. But I, I'd say I've, most of it's just been, uh, I've been very lucky. And one of the things that I, I, I was totally blown away was at how uh, you've been able to accomplish so much just in a short period of time in your life. Uh, so you should be very proud of yourself for doing that, uh, able to accomplish that. So that's gonna, let's talk a little bit about YPA, which is your nonprofit, and what does YPA stand for? 
Yeah, YPA stands for the Youth Pride Association. Uh, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization working to promote and foster the acceptance of LGBTQ people mm-hmm. in education institutions. And we kind of do that through our three mission pillars. So education, uh, educate, support, advocate. If you want, I can talk about the programs a little bit. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we have from those mission pillars, we kind of build our programming. So our first one was our acceptance week program. So we go into high schools for about one week and we kind of what I do uh, call a, a takeover. So we create or we model what an accepting environment would look like um, and we go all out. All out. So we get uh, we give teachers pride flags if they want to hang in their classrooms. We put up posters, banners. Uh, we help students lead uh, their own activities throughout the week. Uh, and we bring in an education and uh, educational speaker uh, at the end to kind of talk about the week, talk about their impacts on acceptance and how they can better support their LGBTQ uh, peers. And we kind of talk about LGBTQ issues at the same time. And that's shown a, a very, very significant uh, positive impact on the students there, more so than I, I would have even imagined myself. And then from that, we kind of thought, what more could we do? So we then created uh, the peer support program. Uh, so we match individuals from across the country with uh, trained, we call them a peer advocate, and they meet bi-weekly virtually for about an hour and kind of talk about the issues that they're facing. They receive education, support, and that advocacy, and we kind of help them self-advocate for themselves. So if they're like running the issues with uh, bullying, we kind of help them um, both cope with what's going on and try to uh, improve the situation. So like reaching out to to their um administrators and kind of doing our best to provide that support. And then from that, we ran into capacity issues. So then we started the virtual support group program, and that works in about 30 states where individuals, LGBTQ students meet biweekly again for an hour with a uh, trained mental health uh, counselor. And they they meet for about a week and just kind of talk about the issues they're facing and kind of build that community. And then from that, also got the opportunity to um, provide some advisement to a lot of education institutions uh, on how they can improve inclusive excellence and that kind of birthed the model school policy initiative so we generate uh, model policies for schools to kind of help them affirm uh, the rights of lgbtq students and kind of improve their policies and procedures Uh, and that one's been very fruitful a lot of it i can't talk about because i'm under nda with a lot of the schools Uh but there is one california state university channel islands which is uh, where i go through our advisement, was able to convert 15 uh, all uh, gender segregated restrooms to all gender restrooms. And that's been very positive for the students here. Uh, and it's been very wonderful, as long as some policy adjustments that they've made. But those are, are less flashy. <laughs> Absolutely, but very important. All I got to say is, wow, way to go to set up such an organization that provides all these programs uh, to GLBTQ plus youth and individuals that really need those support does some does your support primarily in is there a difference between rural communities versus urban communities in the support and do you have any insight on whether it's worse and in for glbtq plus individuals in rural areas versus urban areas uh yeah so in, in our research, we kind of identified that unless you lived in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, or New York, there weren't really any support groups or support mm-hmm. resources available for LGBTQ students. And that kind of guided a lot of our um, program design, uh, kind of our virtual component. 
is designed to reach individuals in more rural and even urban students who might not have access to the same resources as, say, those students from those very select areas. And I, I, we've, we found that um, our distribution from rural to urban has kind of been consistent. So we're not necessarily reaching more rural individuals, but they're definitely partaking in the programming. I think the conditions are, they, they're both unique in terms of like demographics. So there are going to be unique challenges uh, individuals in urban environments are going to face that individuals in rural environments might not face. But the same is true in the reverse. I, I think it's it's hard to compare kind of those conditions, but I'd say that they're both kind of equally bad right now, to be, to be quite frank. I could get into uh, all the statistics that kind of guide that thinking, but well, I don't want to bore cool. you. No, you're not boring at all. So statistically, what what are we finding? Yeah, we're finding that, um, so this statistics kind of uh, all of ours that we use are from other organizations that do very great work. Uh, some are from the CDC, but they found that um, most, there's no real difference in terms of rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, hate crimes from rural to urban. So this, the what I'm going to talk about is kind of across the board. So LGBTQ students face very, very high rates of self-harm. So they're three times more likely to seriously consider suicide uh, each year compared to heterosexual students. And that's also three times more likely to make a plan. And that they're also five times more likely to have attempted suicide in the past year, and five times more likely to require medical treatment from a suicide attempt compared to heterosexual students. And that's from the uh, Center for Disease Control. So not only are uh, LGBTQ students seriously considering suicide more, they're a lot more lethal in their attempts and they attempt at a, a lot higher rate. I don't think that's an isolated thing. I think it's uh, indicative of kind of the conditions. So those higher rates of depression, so it's 2.3 times more likely to exhibit symptoms of depression. It's also that violence and bullying. So LGBTQ students are 170% more likely to skip at least one day a month because of those safety concerns. Uh, and they're two times more likely to be threatened or injured with a weapon on school property. Wow. Which is honestly concerning. Absolutely. And then given that, sorry, it saw me if uh, I bore you with these statistics, um, not, but that's no, how my no, mind no. works. So the Bureau of Justice Statistics, so they kind of analyze uh, crime victimization across the country. They found last year there were over 64,250 LGBTQ individuals who were victims of hate crimes. And that's yearly, with over 10% occurring on school grounds. And do I don't know how many were reported to the FBI? About 1,000. So really? there is a, there's very stark differences there. And kind of hate crimes not only like impact just the individual, they mm -hmm. kind of impact the entire community. So I'm sure you know. I don't it know whether worse. you're aware or not, but September is uh, National Suicide Awareness Month. Uh, mm -hmm. And National Association on Mental Illness, which is NAMI, that I, I support, very support because of their activism on mental health issues, but suicide as well. If I was a parent and I had a GLBTQ plus individual in my family, how is there any sense of what we can do to alleviate the suicide or how we, is there any pointers that maybe they're thinking about this that we would want to consider? Uh, yeah. So uh, I, in our philosophy, we kind of consider suicide more indicative of a deeper issue, a deeper mm -hmm. issue that we try to tackle sure. ourselves. 
So those are the, the higher rates of depression, anxiety, those bullying, harassment. And the solution to it is shockingly simple. So let me find it. So the APA kind of emphasizes that a safe and supportive environment will decrease almost all the disparities um, that we can list for, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of physical, mental health, and substance abuse right. between the LGBTQ and their heterosexual peer to all but non-existent. There's actually a study that we kind of base our entire thinking off of. Uh, let me find it really quick. Um, but essentially, it found that um, a safe and supportive environment that was understanding the nature of sexual orientation and gender identity at school mm-hmm. reduced all risk factors to all but non-existent. So that's a decrease in depression, suicidal feelings, substance abuse, even un- unexcused like school absences. So that's honestly like shocking to me, like how simple that solution is. So right. if we simply just accept the individuals for who they are and we don't bully and harass them, then those, those um, it becomes like all but non-existent, it becomes a non-issue. But so many students, they face a very toxic environment at their schools. Sure. So did you come from an urban environment or rural environment? Uh, so I'm a, a military family. So I grew okay. up uh, dependent in the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, so I've kind of been urban, rural, I've been everywhere. <laughs> so, so that helps bring together different perspectives. I was in a rural area and uh, it, it was difficult in high school and things just because of the factors that we talked about. So you ended up masking a lot of things just in order to survive. So uh, I think that's a unique perspective on the rural versus urban aspect on that. So help me a little bit about what the mission of Youth Pride Association is and how is your mission being realized today? Yeah, so that mission uh, is kind of creating a safe and supportive environment for LGBTQ Mm -hmm. students through those three mission pillars. So educate, support, and advocate. And I think it's being realized uh, through our programming. I think our programming uh, works very well to kind of tackle a lot of the issues LGBTQ students face before it gets to the point where they're mm-hmm. considering uh, suicide. Because I think there's a lot of great organizations that treat the symptom and not necessarily the issue. Right. Um, so our mission is kind of to address that root cause and create those environments that are supportive for all individuals. So I think uh, a lot of individuals kind of view our programming as only for LGBTQ students. The reality is a safe and supportive environment for LGBTQ students is safe and supportive for everyone. And so what are uh, the programs that you mentioned? Uh, The three pillars, I understand that one. So what could you explain a little bit about those programs and what they are and and help enlighten me on that? Yeah. So our virtual support group and our virtual peer support program, it's kind of in the title. Uh, they work to support LGBTQ students uh, and provide those one-on-one and, and community interactions mm-hmm. that they might be uh, lacking in their school and in those positive interactions. But they also kind of work to educate those individuals on what it means to be LGBTQ and kind of provide them a baseline of knowledge. But it also works to help them advocate for themselves. So it kind of blends there. Our acceptance week works to educate and advocate. So educate on what it means to be LGBTQ, because that's often missing in schools and kind of educating on a lot of the misconceptions individuals might have, while also advocating to their peers on why they should create a safe environment, which then inadvertently works to support those students uh, into the going months. Uh, And then our model school policy initiative works purely to advocate often to decision makers on these campuses. 
to make a more positive environment. But then inadvertently, it also works to support them and then works to educate them. So the mission pillars kind of all blend together. I, I find them work very well together. Great. Is so if if you have to refer somebody out for like therapy or something like that, is that a, a program or something that you do? Currently, we do not. Uh, we okay. have not run into in, incidentally an issue mm-hmm. where uh, an individual has been uh, in need of uh, what we call crisis intervention. Mm-hmm. But all of our individuals are, are certified uh, in crisis intervention, so we do QPR certifications for all our volunteers. So it's question persuade refer and that's often to emergency services and then we also have suicide assessment and intervention certifications for all of our supervisors but we have not had to use it incidentally a lot of the students who kind of approach us are maybe kind of approaching uh, a point where they might be having some ideation but i think our programming works really well to provide them those coping mechanisms to kind of better uh, work through those feelings without it becoming a full-on uh, attempt because there, there's uh, there's a big difference between having kind of suicidal thoughts, which is incidentally very normal, mm-hmm. to having that plan to making action on that plan. Uh, and we kind of work to make sure they have those tools so that once they start moving towards that planning, that they're able to kind of work. And a lot of the individuals um, who do grow into our programming also are in therapy, incidentally. Oh, um, okay. So this isn't necessarily meant to be mental health kind of counseling, sure. Um, but it, it definitely works very well with uh, professional mental health counseling. So would you talk a little bit about what peer to peer and means and what the virtual program is like? So if I was a LBGTQ plus individual wanting to get into those programs that you offer, what would I be able to expect from from the programs? Yeah, so um, kind of you would go to our website, you'd sign up, uh, and then within about a week, we would contact you, kind of getting your availability, and then we'd pair you with our peer advocate. And then from there, we meet with you and your peer advocate once, do kind of onboarding. So we kind of go through a couple worksheets that we have, a safety plan um, Mm -hmm. to kind of help that individual. And then we get that initial conversation going. So kind of like talking about what they're experiencing in school, kind of assisting them uh, and their peer advocate to kind of building that bond. Uh, and then from there, the individual, the participant kind of guides what they want from the program. So we have had, have had individuals who only contact their peer advocate in times of crisis when they really kind of just need someone to talk to. We, we train them to be able to work in those, those instances. We've had individuals who only really want like a five minute phone call once a month just to kind of, you know, make sure that they're not forgotten about, which has been very, very um, positive too, incidentally, like those short interactions. And then some individuals prefer biweekly or weekly kind of sessions. So they sit down for an hour and they just chat about what's going on in their school. We've had individuals kind of talk about uh, how to address pronouns not being respected. We've had individuals kind of talk about family issues and kind of how to cope with those. Sure. I have a very wide range of topics, but um, yeah. our participants have definitely um, shown a very positive uh, affinity to our programs. And I think our peer advocates work really well to kind of build that bond and provide at least that one point of contact that they might not have uh, in their school or at home. Sure. So how many volunteers do you have approximately? We just hit a, a, a batch of training. I think we just hit 
25 or 30 volunteers total. That, that's a tremendous work that you're doing with that that number of volunteers. I'm not alone. Definitely, we have we have a supervisors that definitely helps. So it's it's not all me. We have a, a very wonderful team here. Sure, sure. Well, how did this idea of the YPA come about from you? Yeah, so um, it kind of came about again, like I was mentioning, that freshman year of high school when I, I reached that crossroad. Initially, we had we had generated this acceptance week. We put in all the work to create the proposal, design the whole program, and we brought it to I think about 50 nonprofits, both local, national, mm-hmm. uh, regional, and got rejected by every single one of them for the program. I think one of them, a national one that I'm not going to name because uh, that'd be a bit messy, uh, but they even told me that um, that this program would never work and that no school would ever pick it up and that I should quit while I'm ahead. That was a... <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't. Yeah, I'm glad advice. I didn't either. It was a bit shocking to receive that email. I was like, okay, you know what? I The only way I'm going to do this is uh, myself. So mm-hmm. I got my team together. Uh, we all decided to start this nonprofit because uh, it was the only real feasible way to get the funding, be able to approach these schools. And then from there, it kind of is all history. We ran our first acceptance week. We started building more programming um, as we saw the need kind of build up. From there, it's, it's been very lucky. We've been a lot of very um, chance encounters that have uh, provided us a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. uh, that I don't think we would have had otherwise. So, absolutely. So, I, I'm just really want to state this again. Very impressed that you've taken this idea and fully developed it into your program today. That that's that's awesome that you can do that. But yeah, I'm just kind of blown away. <laughs> by the success you've had with this me too me too it's kind of shocking sometimes to kind of look back and you know see how far it's come yeah and when did you start ypa what what year did that occur so it was uh we started the work february 2020 not knowing what would happen that march um and then i think we we got the incorporation paperwork finally complete for the actual organization november of 2020 Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we got our designation effective that November 4th date, I think in January of 2021. So this has been a fairly short process to to be this successful. So very focused, mm-hmm. obviously, but what a great uh, testament to you and the team that you have there to be able to do this in such a, a short time with all the challenges that you had, such as people saying it's not worth it stop Mm -hmm. and doing that how can you're a 501c3 and so how can how is your funding done out of donations or grants or yeah so um we are i think 95 percent funded from uh small donations so we're very crowd funded i think Mm -hmm. our average donation is about 20 dollars we don't receive any money from any corporations or any government we do receive some in-kind stuff, but I don't consider that as part of our revenue. But we're pretty much solely funded by our donors. So we're very fortunate to have a, such a, a loyal and very generous donor base. Great. And so I, I looked at your website. I can actually go in and donate to your website, <laughs> which I will do uh, after speaking Appreciate to it. you uh, because of the work you're doing is so important for our community. Where do you see your vision going for this organization? Yeah, so um, we kind of work uh, kind of a year's time 
that's kind of been uh, how we've been uh, approaching a lot of our things. So mm -hmm. I think in this year, our main focus is capacity building. So we want to reach a lot more people than we currently do. Um, we want to expand our virtual support group to reach those 45 states. That's kind of our goal. We also do need to build up our asset base because uh, currently I think sure. we have about six months of operating uh, expenses covered in our assets, which uh, for nonprofits is kind of dangerous water to be in. Um, not not terrible, but definitely part of as a new organization, we got to do build those assets. Um, sure. And yes. uh, incidentally, probably we're going to add one more program knowing me. <laughs> Usually when it hits November, uh, I start brainstorming and we start building another program for the next year. So well, great. And how big is your team? that helps you develop programs and do all mm -hmm. of the work that, that is necessary. Yeah. So uh, a lot of our program development incidentally comes from outside parties, uh, mm -hmm. kind of help me work that. Um, they're not considered technically volunteers, but it's about five, what I call stakeholders who kind of help me develop that. Uh, I also have a board of about five individuals, including myself, um, who also help me kind of creating that programming. And then our volunteers, incidentally, are very helpful in kind of providing suggestions, kind of where they see it to adjusting our current proposals to improving our programming. Mm -hmm. um, and we're always constantly trying to improve our programming. Because uh, perfection, I think, is an impossible thing to achieve, but we try very hard to get as close as we can to it. Yeah, I just had a discussion about how it, being a perfectionist sometimes is not the best <laughs> best for people uh, working in in organizations because you're never going to achieve that. There's always going to be something that is uh, not going right, and you just need to kind of realize that and move on and build upon it. So I think that's a great uh, philosophy for everyone. But one of the mm -hmm. things I was really impressed why uh, again, and I've used that word several times and it's genuine it's it's really genuine coming across that um on that but you had the 2022 newman civic fellow and president's award for student invitation from california state university channel islands so explain a little bit about those awards and uh how maybe how you felt about getting them uh because one is just here recently in 2022 so yeah uh, honestly i was very fortunate to be uh, awarded these um i was going to kind of those application processes never anticipating receiving the award uh and when i usually get the phone call with the acceptance i'm, I'm honestly always very shocked and uh, very honored to be able to receive that i think the president's award for student innovation so kind of how that approaches is my university uh every year i think for the past two years picks a student who they think uh, demonstrates uh, innovation in terms of programming, either reaching the university or reaching uh, communities, uh, our extended communities. Mm -hmm. And I won that for the Acceptance Week program, which is incidentally how we were able to start the peer support program. And then it gave me a sure. lot of opportunities there. And then the Newman Civic Fellowship, that one is, uh, honestly, I'm, I'm still shocked I got it. So essentially how that works is uh, the Campus Compact which is about a thousand universities uh, across the world. I think I say world, I think it's about three or four countries, but um, kind of mostly across the country. Uh, they nominate one individual they think um, exemplifies uh, service learning and providing uh, community engagement in, in terms of a regional, state, and national level. Um, and then they nominate them to the Campus Compact. Mm -hmm. and the Campus Compact picks about 100, 150 individuals from that pool that they think uh, kind of demonstrate 
a lot of promise in terms of uh, reaching national civic engagement. And I got selected for that. And I'm very shocked and honored uh, to do that. So I get to uh, network with all those other uh, Newman Civic Fellows. I get the opportunity to do a lot of workshops to kind of build up uh, a lot of those skills. I'm very, very honored to have received both of those awards. They've definitely provided me a lot of opportunities I don't think I would have had uh, otherwise. Absolutely. You're biochemist, is that correct? Yes. Uh, Okay. What a yin and yang is the word I will use. Biochemistry over here, uh, and I would say this is more, I'll call person-centered or social civic aspect over here. So how did you bridge from biochemistry to this nonprofit and doing the programs that you do? Yeah, so um, they are very unrelated. I will give you that. They're both things I'm very passionate about, and they Mm -hmm. incidentally cross over a lot more than I think they do, or you would think they would do. Like with uh, the monkeypox epidemic, that's kind Mm -hmm. of been kind of in the back of our minds. Incidentally, my biochemist uh, brain has been able to to provide a a lot of insight that's not necessarily in the space. Uh, And I've been interviewed, I think, by USA Today and the Washington Times to kind of provide my input on that, which has been kind of shocking. But also, uh, it's definitely helped when it came to, um, (laughs) uh, I got to argue with Dr. Phil, the episode's (laughs) coming out soon. I was in the audience and they were having audience participation and uh, it was on trans athletes. And they brought on a Harvard doctor who (sighs) did very bad science. uh, And having uh, my background, I was able to argue a lot of her points, which is (laughs) very shocking and was not expecting that to to come across, but it it crosses over a lot more than you think. Well, way to go. It's just uh, amazing to me that, that the yin and yang works and you do so well in both, both environments to do that one. Mm -hmm. So as a founder of YPA, what does this movement mean to you and, and to our community? Yeah. So um, I think, We've definitely benefited a lot from uh, the people who kind of preceded us. And I'm kind of honored to be able to continue that work. The movement kind of means to me is it's basic human rights that I don't think we're provided as much as we should be. It's a very, very human story uh, that I I get to hear a lot. But I I guess to me, it's kind of uh, being able to have the opportunity to kind of improve the condition to help the individuals who come after me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to kind of make sure that my experiences in high school no longer are the commonplace uh, and that no one else kind of has to go through the stuff that I, I, I went through. Sure. Granted, people have definitely gone through worse in high school. Uh, I have a, very, a lot of sympathy there. Uh, I definitely want to make sure that that also doesn't happen. Well, again, I'm, I don't watch Dr. Phil, but I will your episode <laughs> just because of our interview. Hopefully here. they don't... Uh, edit me out. That's always a bit shocking for me. That is a bit shocking. But uh, I I would like to, again, say uh, how courageous of you to do that uh, and uh, represent our community so well in those type of environments. How would you describe the future for you and the future for our generation, future generations? Uh, Okay. I think as we're seeing now, uh, all of our rights are not, they're not a consistent thing. They're not a a certain thing. And I think if we continue on the trajectory that we are without any major intervention from our community and the broader communities uh, that support us, then uh, we're definitely 
in for a very rude awakening in the coming years. So I think the future is looking a bit bleak, but I'm also a bit optimistic because I've seen what we've been able to achieve as a community in the past. And I hope that we're able to achieve the same thing and even even greater uh, in the coming years. But it's going to take it's going to take kind of all of us to right. have a, a serious look at where things are going, seriously consider the implications of kind of our, our complacence in the past recent years. Well, I certainly hope the other generations, the boomers, the X's and the millennials will join force with the Z's in order to do that advocacy. Uh, the boomers certainly have the knowledge uh, of how to do it. They were very successful back in the day, especially around uh, Vietnam War and especially HIV mm -hmm. and AIDS. So hopefully we'll be able to light a fire. And I, I think I'm a little more optimistic basically because of some of the individuals I know are getting really uh, more ad doing more advocacy, especially after some of the recent Supreme Court rulings and seeing those rights that they perceive to be, have been in embedded are mm -hmm. being over reversed and so hopefully that will add to us to make a better environment for all of our community and the GLBTQ plus individuals yeah. no i think it's definitely been the supreme court ruling especially has been kind of a bit of a rude awakening for everyone mm -hmm. exactly. um and i hate to be right but i've kind of been sounding the, these alarms since i i started my work and yeah. people are starting to listen so i'm, I'm optimistic in that regard but Hopefully things uh, change course soon. I hope so as well. Well, is there any other types of, of things you would like to talk about that we haven't covered today that you think would be important for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, if you'd like, I could dive a bit more into the issues kind of facing LGBTQ students. Absolutely. Because um, I think it's not something that uh, unless you're in these circles, you don't really understand. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of individuals who might be listening might even be going through it themselves like I did are not aware that it's a lot more widespread than just you. Sure. sure. So I'm going to take from Gleason, which is a, a wonderful national organization that does similar work to us, uh, but they do a lot of uh, surveying. They do a, a national climate survey yearly. Uh, and the most recent one indicated that about 95% of LGBTQ students hear homophobic slurs while at school. So there's those are slurs uh, like dyke or faggot at school. Sorry, I should have asked if I could. Oh, absolutely. You can bleep it if you need to. No, um, don't do that. It's, it's, it's a term that's used out there, derogatory, of course, but uh, absolutely, it's heard all the time. Yeah, and it's been reclaimed in recent years, but it still has an impact. And then about 55% hear this language often in the classroom. And I, I hear this constantly. And this is like the most widespread uh, experience. And often teachers won't say anything, they won't do anything. They'll just, you know, be like, oh, stop it. They won't even address it. And that's very detrimental. And often that silence is mm -hmm. kind of seen as um, not even acknowledgement, but just approval of what was said. So to all your LGBT allies, if you hear that language in your classroom, please say something. Right. And then about 70% hear verbal harassment while at school based on their sexual orientation. Uh, and about 55% hear that uh, based off of gender expression. And then the rates of physical harassment are, are very shocking. So physical assault and physical harassment uh, and sexual assault are two times more likely if you're an LGBTQ student, which is 
all of this occurring on school grounds. And the worst part is when reported, so about 55% didn't report to school staff these instances, citing uh, a doubt in the effectiveness of that intervention or fear that it would become worse. And they're unfortunately very correct in that fear. Mm-hmm. So of the individuals who reported, 60% said staff did nothing in response or told school students to ignore it, which is a lot higher than I thought it would be and very shocking. And our model school policy initiative incidentally works to kind of address that disparity. Because I don't think it's a, it's from a malicious place, but the reality is when you don't address these issues and you allow them to continue, the negative effects are only going to compound. Sure. And the, the negative effects do compound. So. Uh, LGBTQ individuals who faced that higher rates of victimization were three times more likely to miss school in the past month, which leads to a lower GPA. And that leads to individual uh, individuals higher victimization two times more likely to not pursue post-secondary education. So they're losing opportunities because they're facing this bullying, this harassment, this assault. And they're also more likely to be disciplined at school, which is very ironic to me that you're disciplining the individuals who are often the victims. Right. Not uh, kind of addressing that. And then, the, you know, the obvious ones. So they had lower self-esteem, lower school belonging, and higher risk of depression. It's, it's honestly horrible. And then people cite the two to four times more likely uh, for LGBTQ individuals to abuse substances uh, before the age of 18. Um, but I think that's more so uh, them trying to cope with these stressors that they're facing right. in schools. So... Kind of, Oh, sorry. Is is there a reason uh, for why school administrations don't protect the rights of GLBTQ plus? Is there some insights you could provide for that? Yeah. So often it comes from a what we see as a place of ignorance in terms of not being educated on mm-hmm. on these issues, uh, not being aware on how they can address it not having the, the proper trainings. Because Title IX do protect these individuals. That's been affirmed in courts. But schools from a place of not wanting to be quote-unquote political, I've heard that statement so much, don't want to take any steps to approach it or provide those supportive resources. And often they don't even realize that this is happening at their own school. Sure. So they don't try to address it. Sure. Uh, it's been very shocking because we do study uh, surveys uh, for these administrators on mm-hmm. the conditions of their students. Mm-hmm. And the results are always shocking every time we bring them to these administrators, and they never realize that the issue is so uh, pertinent in their school. One of the things I think that growing up in a rural community with that one has to be the religious influence. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Brought about on some of the biases or prejudices that, that I've seen in my lifetime and still see today, you know, and it's just kind of interesting to me that that aspect would override an individual's worth and dignity at school, but also how ingrained it is in some of these school districts and administrations. Mm-hmm. And often I don't want to consider it a malicious thing, but sometimes it, it's an unintentionally malicious Right. So a lot of these individuals and uh, administrators have an implicit bias that notice mm-hmm. where they consider your gender identity or your sexual orientation as something that you can choose to be mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to race, which is something you obviously, you know, can't right. choose. Um, so they, they view it as a choice often and treat it as such. So they often tell the individuals to ignore it. You know, they tell them to change it, which is just 
honestly shocking and and horrible, but not surprising. Absolutely. I just saw a clip yesterday, way before your time. It's called West Wing with Martin Sheen, played the president, and he was doing an interview with a reporter who was against homosexuality. And so he started quoting these quotes from the Bible that said, should we stone this person? Should I sell my daughter to be a slave and doing that? So I think the context, which he pointed out, is just that context. But there are other things that that are in those scriptures, especially in Leviticus. And the only reason why I know that, because he pointed out Leviticus, uh, is that it really is something that was fought back then. And West Wing's probably 25 plus years ago was a series that we're still having to encounter this today. It's just shocking to me, but um, it's just lack of education, I think, but lack of understanding a little bit between separation of church and state Mm -hmm. uh, and where that involves into that one. I definitely think it's that lack of education because that's kind of one of our core fundamental ideologies is that you, if we educate an individual, they're often less likely to kind of be bigoted. And a lot of people's views of LGBTQ individuals is a a place of misunderstanding. So that's especially true with uh, trans athletes right now. There's a lot of misinformation when it comes to kind of what testosterone uh, or what puberty blockers are, what hormone treatment is, how the the very rigorous standards trans athletes have to go through and people aren't educated and they just make assumptions based off of what's considered, you know, common knowledge, Mm -hmm. uh, which is often very flawed. But I found once, you know, we're able to have those conversations, be able to educate in a very, um, very positive place, a lot of these individuals kind of change their viewpoints. And it's, I've seen a, a lot of people who I would think, oh, they're never going to, you know, change their viewpoint. They're going to be very rigid in this. I've been very shocked sometimes in kind of seeing those transformations. It's been a bit inspiring to be, to be quite frank. Well, again, I think that speaks to your ability to communicate through all the programs you do, but especially to communicate to those probably older administrators, older school board members, and all of that, the need for protection of GLBTQ plus individuals uh, as well. So again, I applaud you and your organization. You guys are doing an amazing job. uh, I appreciate it. Um, I just wish we could do more sometimes, you know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But you'll get there. I mean, you've only been in existence two years or so. Yeah, I think we're approaching our two years soon. Well, you've accomplished so much, and, and I am a firm believer that you will accomplish even more and be a great hopefully, advocate and force within our community. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate the time. And truly, again, I will say uh, you should be very proud of yourself and your organization for what you've accomplished. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I very much oh, appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle, presented by me, Gary Beagle. Be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast, and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.